In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Have you guys ever said or related to or believed in any of these following phrases? I definitely have. The church is not what we do in here, it's who we are out there. The church is not a building, it's a people. Okay, it definitely have as well. Um, for the last couple years, I've been mulling over those phrases, and I found that they are really helpful to remind us of what we're supposed to be, but they have not shown us the full truth in its totality. And as I've thought about it, uh, it's been about a whole, at least a generation of saying this, because I grew up hearing this. Um, I think that unintentionally, such slogans have reduced what the church is, and it's actually caused us to be the church in a lesser form than it was supposed to be. So what I've witnessed is a grow in my lifetime is a growing anti-church movement, in which people have a a um, a mentality of if the church is just who we are and not what we do, then um, it doesn't matter if we get together at all. I can do church in my home by myself, or I can just get together with a couple of meaningful people in a coffee shop and call that church. And I've had people tell me that that's how they fellowship. Um, there's an anti... Like, the more structured a church is, the less a lot of people in today's society want to be part of it. And now, it, it, is, it is true that a church is its people, and it's not just its building, but a church actually is a place too. It is true that the church is what we do out there, but it's very true that the church is also what we do in here. It's what makes us who we are out there. So this anti-church movement has gained a lot of steam in my lifetime, and I don't think COVID helped it at all. Do that. <laughs> I don't think COVID helped it at all. And it's time to just question this and say, okay, what does it mean to be the church? And how did we get here? And does the ascension of Christ say anything about this for us? And the answer to all this is yes, 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 yes. Um, my belief is that after long reflection, and I, I believe that humanism is partly to blame for this, and that the church has adopted humanism as one of its fundamental worldviews. Now, we would never sit down, and if you put worldviews on a paper and did a test, we would not check the boxes of what humanism represents, and we'll explain that in a minute. But we wouldn't check those boxes. We would check all the right answers. But practically speaking, Christians have absorbed the atmosphere that they live in. And we have become humanists over the generations that humanism has pushed its progressive agenda on us. And this has led us to an individualistic view of what it means to be part of the church. It, it, we, uh, we look at what I am to the church, and we never think about what we are as a church. And so this leads to this concept of, I am the church, and I don't have to be in that place or with those people. I can do the church this way. Well, this actually stems from a very secular, very anti-Christ philosophy. And so that's what I want to look at. I want to look at humanism, but I also want to look at the true humanism. Christianity 
was the original humanist philosophy. What I mean by that is Christianity was the original uh, belief that said humanity is more than we've always treated humans as. Christianity said that, Christ, uh, that, that, that humans are made in the image of God and have been restored to that image and have been exalted in that image. But humanism has taken this idea of let's put humans in the center and they've actually in the process reduced all of this. So that's what I want to take you through if you're willing to go. I uh, need the whiteboard because I forgot to pull out. So here we go. Because I want to take you on a crash course through the history of the world in three words. <laughs> all right. Stage one. And don't worry, we will, this will all lead us to Ephesians. You just have to see why this Ephesians matters in context. Phase one is Rome. Now, I know the world is older than Rome. But Rome and its empire epitomizes everything the world was. Up. Rome was just the climax of everything the world was building to. Rome collapsed. And then you had the church. This marker is not going to last. And then we had the church. Uh, this was now the history we have been handed down is that this was a very dark age when the church ruled the world people suffered well if you actually do your history that's not true oh there were pockets of bad times and bad rulers but the church saved the world when Rome collapsed and it became so Rome ruled the world and then for a long period the church ruled the world and now what we're living in is a new era in which it's not the church and it's not Rome, but it is the self. The self rules the world. Okay, so in each of these progressions, we have uh, an interesting relationship with each other. So in, uh, in Rome, let's look, we're going to look at marriage. How does marriage work in all these? In Rome, marriage is multiplying... The empire. Why, why do fathers get... Why do men marry? So they can have kids, so the kids can become outstanding citizens of the empire and serve the emperor and promote the empire. Um, and maybe that these kids will also serve in the military at some point. Um, in the church, marriage is about multiplying the kingdom of God. Why do we, why do we get married as Christians? So that we can have children and raise them and pass down the faith to them. So that we can multiply God's kingdom and witness and show little churches, homes are little churches within the church. So that the church can spread, not just from its building, but into homes and in neighborhoods and so forth. We're not seeing this today, are we? Because we aren't living. This is not our king anymore. Christ is not the king. The self is the king. So what we now see with marriage is it's a multiplication of yourself. Consider how we look at romance today and how we do these dating websites. And, and the advice we give young people is what we want is we want people, we want to find people who are compatible with us. Well, the only problem with this is that it's really hard to, for me to go and find somebody compatible with me and them at the same time looking at me and saying they're compatible with me. 
Because what you're then doing, you're saying two people have two separate goals who are looking for somebody to meet and marry into their goal. But wait a minute, the other person has goals too. Especially in the world of humanism, where each individual is supposed to set up their own goal. How do you get two people with their own unique goals to marry each other? Well, eventually they say, yeah, we can partner with each other. And then they have their own like little bank accounts and their own little free times. And eventually, they start growing apart. You hear this all the time. We just grew apart. Well, duh, because you are two individuals trying to multiply yourself through your marriage and then through your kids. And so you end up saying we're no longer compatible because you had a bad foundation. In the church, marriage was about, um, it was not about multiplying yourself and finding somebody compatible. It's about submitting yourself to another person. The husband asked the wife what she wants, and the wife asked the husband what he wants. And the two were not trying to live their own dream. The two laid down their dream to birth a third dream. That's what marriage is in the church. But this is why we see divorce skyrocketing is because we've forgotten the idea of submission and of laying down our desires. Um, and then kids, well, kids here, <laughs> kids in marriage under the kingdom of self, what do you hear from all young people? Oh, we're waiting for kids because they're going to ruin our fun. This is a common attitude in the world, and it's not different in this church. Um, we forgot that the point of getting married was to have children. That is actually the biblical vision of marriage is to have children. Because we are meant to multiply the church in our homes. Um, so, yeah, we have this whole kingdom of self. Now, that's, that's the marriage aspect. There's one other part we've got to look at because marriage is not everything. Not everybody's called to be married. Some people are called to be single. And that's a legitimate position in all of history. How did Rome treat single people? Well, there's quite a broad range of ways to do it. But one way you treat single people in an empire is you make them join the military. Right? You've got nothing to lose, so let's go fight. Uh, in the church age, what do you do with single people? They go into the monastery. What's the monastery? So here, you're fighting for the emperor. But in the monastery, you're fighting yourself. You're trying to die to self so that you can then spread the kingdom of God. And it's interesting if you think about it, these often will mirror each other. Like the monastery, trying to subdue the self was a mirror for what marriage is supposed to be. The two are supposed to sub subdue themselves so they can become a new creature together. But in Rome, uh, the self, is the individual is supposed to go conquer any rebellion and so marriage uh, was supposed to do the same thing. You're supposed to conquer all... You're expanding the empire, right? Conquering rebellion. Uh, but this is the one that's really interesting over here, is the self. Um, what, is, what is singlehood in the age of self? It's another M word. Yeah. It's me, Dia. Social media, me time, is a lot of emphasis on uh, self-care and, and just everything kind of wrapping and orienting around myself. And actually what we find is in this age, the monastery is larger than the church, so to speak. We have more people in their own individual solo lives than we have people living in institutional organizations. Um, because what we've all done is we've, we've went after the freedom of limitation 
The monastery of the current age, the self, the media monastery, uh, is all about eliminating limitation because it's about expressing myself. So the monastery in the church age was about subduing the self, but in the current self age is about expressing the self. So in order for me to fully express myself, I, I don't want to get married because this person might cramp my style. I don't want kids because they're no longer going to let me go dirt biking in, in the desert and drinking with all my buddies every weekend. Um, I no longer want to, um, I don't want to be part of a church because it's going to tell me that I have to be like X, Y, and Z. So it's about eliminating all of these things so that you can express yourself. That's the monastery of the current age. Okay, so this is the history of the world in three stages. Rome, the church, and the self. Now, um, there's an interesting overlap period in all of these in which um, Rome was ruling, but none of these kind of simply shifted over because then you also have this little overlap period where the church is ruling. And it's in this little overlap period that we have the New Testament. Right? Rome is still there, but Christ has ascended in glory. He's seated at the throne of God. And there's this overlap period. Okay. Um, so this overlap period is what we call the ascension of Christ. This is when he went and took, uh, sat on the throne. And then he gave the Holy Spirit to his church to go and carry out his rule on the earth. Now the overlap period between the church and the kingdom of self um, sorry that that blue is fading, but it's probably the last we'll use of it. Uh, this overlap period, it can go, it's quite a long, the transition from Rome to the church was relatively short. It was a generation, practically. I mean, Rome went on to like 400 AD, but the church was just fully influenced the culture. So let's say 300 years. Uh, the overlap here was very gradual. You could say it started with the Renaissance but then it escalated in the Enlightenment. Um, but it really came to a head in America when we started to propose things that came out of the Enlightenment, but we really pushed the idea of humanism. So that's what we need to address right now. It, humanism is what took the crown from the church and put it on the, crown, uh, the head of the self. It was the coronation of the self. So what is humanism? Humanism, uh, a lot of definitions, but they all center around this, basically. It is where we give meaning and shape to our own lives. We give meaning and shape to our own lives. In other words, our way as humans is better than God's way. So, and if you go look up definitions of humanism, they all target the idea that we find meaning and shape to our own lives without... The idea of a God or any theism. It is completely human driven. The human looks at the human and decides this is the point of life and this is why I exist. And this leads to seeking our own personal fulfillment. That's humanism. It's all about the self leading the self to shape the self's destiny, to make the self discover what the self needs to be. And yeah, the collective self will come together sometimes for the greater good of the rest of the selves, but ultimately we're all selves finding our own destiny. That's humanism. Okay. Um, but the ascension 
And uh, by the way, the, the humanism was meant to really say, wait a minute, don't let the church tell you you're a sinner. You're better than that. Don't let the church tell you that you need to pray. You don't have to pray. You can just go and, and binge Spotify for the rest of your life. You don't have to do these things. You find your own way. Don't let the church tell you. Okay? But the ascension, which is what birthed the church, the, the crowning of Christ as king over all, the ascension tells us a completely different story. That Jesus came in flesh. And he became dust from which we were made. He came as low as we are. But then, in the ascension, he goes back up to the Father. That dust which he became, he pulled all the way up and seated that dust at the throne of glory. You have to understand that Christ on the throne is not just some glorified ethereal, ethereal uh, it's like spiritual reality. Like actually there is a flesh and blood Christ who is also God at the throne. He brought humanity to the throne of God and sits there with him. He glorified our dust. And humanism is trying to do that by saying to the dust, dust, you have power. Go do something with your power. But what Christ did is said, um, you're still dust. So let me come and pick you up and take you to the highest possible place. This is your true destiny and your true goal. And this is why I've given my church to give you direction in a way of life. is because I want you to live into this potential of you are called to be with Christ at the throne of God. This is, this is how Revelation says that we will rule with him. Is because when Christ ascended, humanity ascended. This is actually more than what Adam and Eve were called to be. They were going to get there, but they sinned. Christ has brought us where we were trying to go. Humanity is really a reduction of what Christ has done for us. Now, let's look, if you will, at... Uh, Ephesians, because Ephesians is the one who most boldly talks about our place with Christ in the ascension. And it's worth looking at two passages. Um, if you will look at 1 verse 22, Ephesians 1 verse 22, Ephesians chapter 1 is the most complicated chapter in the whole Bible. Because it is two sentences in the Greek. You're looking at 22 verses, and these are just two really long sentences. So basically what it is, is Paul just basically is setting up his whole argument in the whole first chapter. Think of like when you're writing a thesis paper, you're like opening paragraphs, supposed to be like five sentences, right? Well, Paul's just written the first two sentences of this opening in chapter one. And he hasn't even really gotten to his point. And it's so deep. You can do Ephesians 1 for a year. Easy. So, by verse 22, we're coming to the end of his second sentence. And he says, uh, God, the Father, put all things under his, this is Christ, the Father put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, that's the end of the sentence. What has Paul said? In sentence one, 
He blesses God, and he goes through this whole story of salvation that he chose us from the foundations of the world, so the creation. He redeemed us through his blood, referring to the Exodus story. He gave us an inheritance in the Holy Spirit, uh, referring to the promised land. And he's saying that this whole story of the Old Testament is actually a reality for you and I in Christ. That he has remade us. He has redeemed us from from Egypt, from from our sins. He's given us the land in the Holy Spirit, an inheritance of the kingdom to come. And then in sentence two, he then prays that we would understand this really long first sentence. He says, I ask the Lord that you would open the eyes of your heart, that you may know the hope of your calling, that you may know the inheritance that Christ has in the saints, and that you will know, his third request is that we would know, this is in verse 20, uh, 19, actually, in verse 19, we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. I want you to know the power toward us who believe. What power, Paul? Paul then defines it with the rest of this sentence. The power, according to the work of his great might, that he, the Father, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. How high is that? It's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What power has he given to us? I want you to know the power he's given to us. What power? The power that raised him and seated him above every single power. And when Paul uses those rulers, authorities, dominions, and thrones, these are all referring to, yes, earthly kings. But in the biblical worldview, earthly kings are little midgets compared to the powers in the spiritual realm. We're even above the highest spiritual powers is where he's seated us, because Christ is above all that. That's the power he's working in us. And then he concludes, as we read in verse 22, so he then put all things, because there's nothing above Christ. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So the Christ, who now has all things under his feet, has been given as the director, the head, the king of a people. The people are called the church. The Greek word is ecclesia. Ecclesia. And it's an important word which we'll break down in just a bit here. Um, but you have to understand that when you see the word church, sometimes you have baggage in your mind when you hear the word church. We have to understand that what Paul's referring to is Christ was given as the ruler of a people, an assembled group of people who come underneath his authority. This one, who has power over all, is now leading this people. It's really cool. So that's what Ephesians starts off with. Then in chapter 2, he then gets basically into his, okay, first two sentences, done. So now let me give you a review of your life. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, according to the principalities, uh, according to uh, the, the ruler of the air, and according to the, uh, the passions of the flesh. And you were disobedient. But God, in verse 4, so he, he sets that up like we were sinners, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in those so-called trespasses that we just mentioned, those trespasses, even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. So when Christ was brought back to life, you and I were brought to life because sin was dealt with. It's no longer shackling us. 
So a new identity was launched. He, he raised us together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul hasn't even gotten to the main point of this letter yet. He's just, this is all backstory is what he's doing. And he's like, we're looking at this and going, wait, that's backstory? This is news to me. This is news. Like Christ has brought us with him to the throne and we're seated there. And we're okay just saying, you know why we're okay with this? Because of humanism and the, the kingdom of self. We're okay saying, I just struggle with that. What can I do? Saved by grace. We excuse things because of the mercy and grace of God without realizing that, yeah, but the grace of God means the power that raised him and seated him above all things is working in us. So I can look at the stupid sin or the stupid personality flaw and I can look at it and say, through the grace and work of God in my life, I'm going to do what he's teaching me to do through his people, through the church, through his word, and I can actually overcome this sin. I can actually improve and become more of the ruler he's asked me to be in this world. No, so no, we're not ruling over kingdoms, not yet. We're not ruling over politics, not yet. We aren't ruling over, if you do this, you'll get wealthy, not, not yet. In fact, that's so little, little beans compared to the wealth that comes with the kingdom. But um, we're asked to rule over the self. Humanism says, let the self rule you, express yourself. We were asked to subdue this old person that was crucified with Christ the new that was raised and seated with power, why are we not letting that self come to the surface? Why are we not letting the one in Christ and the Christ in us come and, and, and blossom with power? I think because we just belittle. We forget. We forget what the gospel says. That I am dust, but Christ became dust. And glorify that dust all the way up. He came all the way down so that we can go all the way up. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. And it makes us realize that this third phase of the kingdom of self is so pathetic. And I, I am so guilty because I've grown up in the kingdom of self. You have grown up in the kingdom of self. Humanism has been our babysitter. Since we, all of us, no matter how old we are, it, or young, it's been our babysitter since we are born. Especially from Disney and from everything else. Especially politics. They all talk. How do politics get votes? They appeal to the kingdom of self. It envelops our world. And the church has not been inoculated against it because one short hour of gathering together with a bunch of people you mostly don't know, to sing some songs that are ever-changing, because it's whatever's most popular, and to hear a sermon does not change your babysitter. Do you hear me? Mm -hmm. All it does is it adds some ideas about the gospel to a framework that is actually destroying what the gospel's teaching us. We have to learn, through being the people of God, how to overthrow the dictator of self and be the ecclesia together, the church together. So that is where I forgot to read Chrysostom's quote, which is epic. I will do that, and then we'll talk about how we crown Christ king over our lives. 
So here's what John Chrysostom said. And I love this because, um, one, he says a lot of really good things. But two, um, we are enamored in our culture with what does powerful humanity look like? We want powerful people ruling over us. We want to see powerful people on a sports field. We want to see powerful people doing their skills and whatever it is, like American Idol or that's probably a dead thing now, isn't it? Or cooking prowess, you know, like whatever it is. We want human power. He says this. If you want to find out how great man is, what is humanism about? The exaltation of man. This is how great we are. He says, way before this was even trendy, if you want to find out how great man is, do not look toward the palaces of kings and do not look to the seats of the mighty, but raise rather your gaze heavenward toward the throne of God and you will see sitting at the right hand of power a man, Jesus Christ. You want to know how great man is? Stop looking at these little pawns on the chessboard that we think are so wonderful. Look at the throne and there is the man. Jesus Christ, both God and man. That is where our eyes should be. How do we then keep our eyes there? How do we crown Christ as king? How do we get back to the church being the king of the world, of your world. Now, before I say that, some people are like, ooh, going back to that? Like, wasn't that all about the Pope? And wasn't that about crusades? And wasn't that... Again, you're letting, you're letting humanism dictate the past to you, right? The present historian is always saying the present's better than the past. You have to understand that, always. The church was not always as bad. Yes, we made a lot of mistakes, but it was not always that bad. Um... When we say going back to this model, we don't mean going backward. We mean going forward. We mean going to a point where, see, the problem with the church then was that when you went from Rome to the church and there's this overlap, the church carried on where Rome fell. So what did you get? You had an emperor model in the church. A better emperor. But he was nonetheless acting as an emperor. You know what I'm talking about, right? We had the Pope in a very, very, very structured hierarchy of the church. Why? Because it was, a, it, it, it was carrying over from Rome and forgot to let Christ reform it as it went. There was a point when the church needed strong leadership because the world was in shambles. But then it took all that power to itself. It forgot to look at the man on the throne, right? And it looked at the man with the tall, funny hat or whatever they were. Um, so what we get to do is we get to say, no, let's go back now that the, the, the institutions of the world are falling. We don't have to let the kingdom of Christ fall as an institution. We can go back and say, okay, let's let the church reign again, but learning the lessons from the past. Recognizing that Christ is on the throne and keeping him on the throne. And we will succeed if we remember to crown him king. That's why I think Ascension Sunday is important to remember every year. Not only does it take us through the story of the gospel every year, like we do Easter and Christmas every year, but it reminds us, crown Christ king. Our politicians aren't king. Whatever Vladimir Putin's up to isn't king. Whatever Xi in China's up to is not king. Like, these guys are just little specks of dust. How do we put Christ king? More importantly, how do I not be my own king? 
I need that because every okay, this by the way. Like we say we need these phones and you're right, okay, so the world's gone a certain way and like sometimes you have to adapt, right? You almost can't survive without having some sort of communication. So okay, we get that. That's not evil. The phone's not evil, but the phones have been programmed to put you in charge. You see how like every little part of our life has been teaching us that you are the king. You can personalize your settings. You can get messages straight to you. And in fact, you know what? If you're tired of hearing the news what the Democrats are doing, you can curate your news so you can only see what the Republicans are doing. Like, that's how everything is. It's all curated around King You. Now, don't forget how, many, how much taxes you paid on that phone. And I don't mean to the government. I mean to the company that made it. Don't forget, you are serving an emperor one way or another. Um, so how do we try to keep Christ crowned over our lives? So I would think of three quick things. Um, and this mostly coming, the idea is coming from Ephesians 1.22, that he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, so... How do we crown Christ King? First and most obvious and most important, we obey Him. This sounds obvious, doesn't it? But if He is our King, we obey Him. I don't understand. No, I do. I do totally understand. Because of media and self and humanism. I do understand when Christians look at me when I say this is what God asks us to do, and they're like, but I don't have to do that. I get that, because we've been cradled by humanism. I can carve my own way to human flourishing. Why don't we understand the Beatitudes? Humanism. Do you remember when Richard Morris taught last year, uh, and he stood up and said, I want you to write down, maybe I said this, I don't remember now, maybe we both said it, uh, eight things you value most or you want most in life, and people shared, and uh, I did this in least in class, and I remember nobody said the Beatitudes. But these are the eight things Jesus tells us to value. The most important things we can acquire. Poor in spirit. Mourning over sin. Being meek. Like, okay, why don't we obey Christ? Because we forgot that God's way is better than man's way. Obeying him is the first step. When, and, and we also need to understand that sometimes God has given wisdom through the church, through the ecclesia. And I don't mean just through one authority. It's kind of dangerous to bank your life on one human, right? But through the collective witness of the church through the ages, there's safety. And when the church of the ages has said, prayer matters so much so that you should have at least two times a day of set, like, specific, I'm praying, write this, like, this, and I'm praying this psalms. Like, when the church has said this for thousands of years... But we say, eh, we don't have to. Is that obedience? It's, it's, you know, it's a hard one because the self wants to say, but the Bible didn't command that. But is Christ your king or not? Is this a way to crown him? To say, I want to pray now. I want to keep praying continually. I want to save you less of this newscast or this, this television show or... I would do less eating and more praying. Um, these are ways, just simple obedience and these little things are ways that we crown him. I'm not saying, oh, we have to stop like sinning. You really do need to. But sometimes this is where our mind goes. Oh, obedience means don't sin. 
that that's a negative way of thinking of obedience. God hasn't just established him on the throne and say, stop doing these things, you people. He's also given us proactive things to do that will, if we focus on those, will lead us way away from sin. So your, your, your occupation isn't always, what would Jesus do in this situation? It's, I'm always with Jesus. And he's pulling me in a different manner of desiring. Sorry, I'm just kind of going off on obeying. So obedience is important. And in the various ways we need to grow in obedience, let's obey. Jesus said, when you pray, that means obedience is praying. When you fast, that means fasting is obedience. can't tell you how many people are shocked that Christians actually fast regularly. It's obedience. When you give, it's obedience. Um, so that puts Christ as the head. He gave him as head over the church. When we obey him, we put him as the head. Second, so we obey him. Second, um, the way we worship. And specifically, the way I've become convinced is important is to worship in a form of a liturgy. Because that puts self out of the out of the driver's seat, and it puts it puts Christ in the center. So I don't have the time because we've done this before. I don't have the time to go into defining what a liturgy is. But what a liturgy is is it's what the people do when they come together. That's what a liturgy was in the Greek. What do people do when they come together? So our liturgy must be specifically designed to put the self out of the driver's seat and to put Christ at the top. And this is really important to me because I realized how little, how much I was co-opted into worldly thinking because I didn't have a worship community that challenged me to actually thoroughly from the way I think and act to put Christ on the throne instead. Because what I would do instead is I would walk in and I would wonder um, what song, oh, I like it when this person's leading the worship music because they play these songs and these are the songs I like. Do you already see how centered, self-centered worship becomes? And I know we all think like that. So don't feel terrible. Just just think better. <laughs> um, and then um, and we want we want to feel a certain way through this. And that's fine. Like being before God should produce some really radical feelings. But we don't put these feelings first. Because I don't always feel like repeating lines from a song. Sometimes, oh, that song? That's a long one. Or we've done that one five times already. Yeah, but the psalm is leading my heart to God. Versus my heart leading myself to... Maybe God, but like the parts of God I want to face and not the parts I don't. The, the point of liturgy, in other words, is not to put the, the human in the center of the church. It's to put God in the center of the church. And, and unfortunately, brothers and sisters, we see too much of that. The sermons are aimed at making you feel better about yourself. The worship's aimed at manipulating your feelings. And you know it, and I'm going to get super technical here, but like some songs are just built in a way that when it gets to a certain climax, you just see like this unanimous, like, because you feel it. You feel it. There's this energy and this emotion. Okay, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we, when we build that as the center of all worship, it's now emotion and feeling driven. 
when this should become a byproduct of putting Christ in the center. Um, so we worship liturgically because liturgy is a participation, not a consumption. We don't gather as the ecclesia, as the church, to consume. I need this fix. I need this help. I need this. We get that, but not when we put consumption first. Liturgy means the people come together and build something. So the people are going through scriptures together. The people are praying together. The people are doing a work together. And it goes beyond a formal liturgy. That liturgy can look like the people keep their hours of prayer together. We all know that perhaps, for example, idealistically, like, oh, the people fast on this day. We fast together. We pray the Lord's Prayer at noon together. We read the Psalms together. We're in the same gospel together. Liturgy is about doing and building something together. It's participating together. We obey. We worship Him within the, at the center. And then third, to crown Christ as king, we must be the church. And now this is where I'm going to tell you what ecclesia means. We must be the ecclesia. So, I just want you to see if you don't under, if Greek scares you. It's not scary. Look at these English letters I'm putting up here for you. Uh, and I'm being too soggy. Okay, eclay, eclay, I don't know if it's two S's or one, it doesn't matter. It's one S. Okay. <laughs> Ecclesia. Okay, that's an L. So it's E K and then Ecclesia. So it's two words. Uh, ek, I bet you can guess what that means. What? Ugh, no. It means to come out, to call out. So we get like exit from this. Uh, it's part of where our root comes from. So out. Klesia. Klesia is to call. So if you're going to call, Klesia. So the Ecclesia is the called out ones. So on one hand, we're called out from the world. We're called out from our sin. We're called out from humanism. We're called out from Babylon and Rome. We're called out. But now specifically, the way Ecclesia was used in its context in the New Testament world, you have to remember when Paul says Ecclesia, this was a well-known word in the world. How did the Greeks and Romans use the word Ecclesia? It referred specifically to a gathering of people who left their homes to join a public space and make political decisions. That was an ecclesia. They went to town hall. They left their they didn't do this at home and voted on their phone. They they left their homes, they left themselves, they became a new identity together and they participated they did a liturgy. They participated in making something happen. They might have voted to build a bridge for their town over this, this wide river because of the terrible snowstorms we had. They might uh, be deciding to elect a new ruler over the, the financial department of the city. Like They call, were called out and they made decisions together. That was what the ecclesia was in the New Testament world. So in the church, uh, you can see the, the same concept. Citizens are being called out, but not for the kingdom of Rome. Not for the kingdom of America. Not for the kingdom of humans. <laughs> We're being called out of our individual little cells and homes. Out of our little media time. We're being called out to assemble together. As citizens of the kingdom. 
to make something happen. That, when I was teaching Matthew to the Bible college, hit me the hardest about what the ecclesia is. Because you remember, the first time the word shows up in the New Testament is Matthew 16. Jesus tells Peter, uh, you confess that I'm the, son, the Messiah, the Son of God. Upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. First time it's used in the New Testament. So I was looking that up, and like, what do I tell my students he means by the ecclesia? Because I know like our concept of that's a mess. And that was the most important thing that stuck out to me, is the ecclesia was always a public assembly. So much so, Paul always uses it in the sense of gathering, togetherness, assembly. That one, one New Testament commentator who's a really, brilliant, really good guy, really good commentator, he said that the church does not exist when it's not assembled. That's how much the assembly of the ecclesia depended on its assembly. So, Christ being king, when we assemble, whether it's in Michael Beaver's home, seven of us breaking bread and praying, whether it's 30 or less of us in this room, worshiping through a liturgy, hearing the scriptures, but it's when the people of God come out of their homes or come out of themselves and gather together, the ecclesia is happening. And when we do that, you are crowning Christ King. Because what politic are we gathering for? The kingdom of God. And if Christ is a king on a throne, you honor kings by gathering in their courts. So when we gather, we are in the court. He is on the throne, and now the king can execute his commands. That's what the ecclesia is. So, uh, I'd like to say, um, the kingdom of Rome, the kingdom of the church, the kingdom of the self. We need to get back to understanding the ascension, and that the kingdom is the ecclesia in its assembling, in its gathering. That's why Ephesians, uh, I'm sorry, Hebrews, we read it. That's why Hebrews said, don't forsake the gathering together because Christ has sat down. Notice all the context. He sat down at the throne making one permanent sacrifice and he's provided a way for us to go into his holy place. So don't forsake the gathering together until the day appears because this is how we honor our king. He's king when we gather. He's king over the ecclesia not over people who simply believe or do their own thing. He's king over the ecclesia. <clears throat> glory to you, Christ, who have been ascended in glory above every rule and every authority. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.